If you are parents raising kids in the city, the chances are pretty good that at some point you'll go to the Bronx Zoo. I happened to uh, drive by that this past week and a memory came back to my mind from a number of years ago when the zoo closed its famed monkey house, officially the primate house. Finally succumbing to the same maturing rationale that closed the lion, elephant, and ape houses before it, the monkey house had outlived its usefulness, having been born in what might be called zookeeping's colonialism period. Part of the monkey house lore includes a truly terrible but darkly compelling story from 1906 when a small African man named Oda Benga was placed on display in one of its cages. It's a very difficult story from many angles, including the awful legacy of racist colonialism but if you'll bear with me, it may help us think deeply about the work we attempt to accomplish during our season of Lent. Especially consider those words that Jesus spoke that we just heard. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Bengo was a member of the Mbuti people in what, has, what was then known as the Belgian Congo. The tragic story unfolds when his people were slaughtered by the Belgian military who needed to control the natives in order to exploit the large supply of rubber. Benga lost his wife and two children, surviving only because he was away on a hunting expedition when the military attacked his village. He was later captured by slavers. An American businessman and missionary, Samuel Werner, was sent to Africa in 1904 under contract from the St. Louis World's Fair to bring back an assortment of pygmies, so-called, to be part of an exhibition. En route to a particular village, he discovered Otabanga and negotiated his release from the slavers for a pound of salt and a bolt of cloth. Werner brought him back to the United States where Benga was exhibited at the World's Fair as part of a display of so-called emblematic savages and other strange people in the anthropology wing. This first stop in America was clearly influenced by an incipient racist Darwinism. 
By 1906, Benga had been brought to New York, first as a curiosity at the Natural History Museum, but then ultimately finding his way to the Bronx Zoo, where he was put on display in the monkey house. Although the zoo director insisted he was merely offering an, in, an intriguing exhibit for the public's edification, he apparently saw no difference between a monkey and a little man. For the first time in any American zoo, a human being was displayed in a cage. Benga was given some cage mates to keep him company in his captivity, a parrot and an orangutan. Now it was wide, widely believed at this time, even by eminent scientists, that blacks were evolutionarily inferior to Caucasians. But caging one in a zoo produced a lot of publicity. Otabenga worked or played with the animals in a cage and the spectacle of a black man in a cage gave a reporter the springboard for a story that worked up a storm of protest among African-American ministers in the city. Their indignation was made known to the mayor, a thoroughgoing racist. He refused to take action. They wrote, quote, our race, we think, is depressed enough without exhibiting one of us with the apes. We think we are worthy of being considered human beings with souls. But now in a striking defense of the depiction of Benga as a lesser human, an editorial in no less an exalted journal than the New York Times suggested this, and I'm quoting from the editorial. We do not quite understand all the emotion which others are expressing in the matter. It is absurd to make moan over the imagined humiliation and degradation Benga is suffering. The pygmies are very low in the human scale, and the suggestion that Benga should be in a school instead of a cage ignores the high probability that school would be a place from which he could draw no advantage whatever. The idea that men are all much alike, this is stunning, the idea that men are all much alike except as they have had or lacked opportunities for getting an education is now far out of date. In other words, even the enlightened and exalted New York Times was under the thrall of racist science, not to mention racist cultural norms. And friends, I don't, I suspect, really have to tell you how that kind of thinking got wound up over the next few decades in Europe into a principal rationale behind the Holocaust. Here's what's relevant for our purpose today. Given the time and distance that has now passed, although all things considered, not really so very long ago at all, a little over a hundred years. I've lived for more than half of that myself. In one sense, it's just a short while ago, which catches your breath, 
but perhaps enough distant to allow us a bit of perspective and a sense of the cultural freight of institutionalized evil. And by institutionalized, I refer to both formal and informal structures that conferred assumptive power on evil motives and outcomes that were taken for granted. People just knew. The plaintive request of the black clergy haunts our conscience. We think we are worthy of being considered human beings with souls. That could ring backwards and forwards through the ages right to the present moment as the humble rebuke of every person who has ever been stripped or denied their basic human dignity. And on this they speak for Jesus. Now we can't change the past and I've not retold the story to foster a backwards-looking, hand-wringing, moralizing. Instead, I simply want to present it as it is, without embellishment. The facts speak entirely for themselves. It's probably fair to say that most people of privilege in that day were enthralled with a corrupt pseudoscientific theory confirming their already well-institutionalized beliefs about human rankings. And of course, for those in power, it is always quite gratifying and quite obvious that they should be on the top, among the elect, or otherwise just basically better than so many others. Now, you have heard me confess the sins of the church in these matters over the years, and it is not lost to me, and it should not be lost to you, that the businessman that brought Otabenga back to the U.S. for display was a missionary. Many a fine, upstanding Christian could then, and still today, find many reasons why some people are just obviously inferior and beyond the bounds of God's graceful care. Why some people do not belong, must be kept out, must be shut out. With Benga, seeing him caged with an orangutan just simply made the obvious case that most everyone already assumed. good Christian people. And this, friends, is what I find so challenging. Do you suppose that had you been at the Bronx Zoo in 1906, you would have held a different point of view than what the institutionalized powers espoused, including the scientific community and the wise New York Times? And yet, from our distance, we see what an insidious evil it was 
and how mutated versions of this same human ignorance wended its way through the decades of the 20th century wreaking havoc right into the present moment. Although here's my real point. <laughs> and it comes in the form of a question. Can we see it now? That is, situated within our own darkness, can we see how we participate and collude with the powers and principalities that put others down and out, excluding them from God's hospitality, God's grace? Is it possible to see how we collude with the groupthink of our day. I'm asking it as a honest-to-gosh, real-life question of myself personally. Is it possible to see it from inside? And for that matter, can we see how we ourselves are corrupted in our own character? How is it possible to get a helicopter view, as it were, of our lives? in order to gain a perspective on the interplay of darkness and light there. For instance, how we treat those we say we love, or our friends and neighbors close to home, let alone those we don't even know. Even if we wanted to get a handle on this, is it even possible to do so? How can we ever gain perspective and insight? Do you suppose that anyone in 1916 would have thought they were in any way responsible for Oda Benga's suicide who one day found a gun and shot himself in the heart. I suspect the typical response would have gone something like this. Well, well, there, well, see, there you have it. What more could be expected of an inferior specimen? But now, as I mentioned in the beginning, I've shared Oda Benga's story because at the end of our gospel lesson, Jesus says to Nicodemus, we don't pay much attention to this, quite frankly. That's why I'm telling the story. Jesus says to Nicodemus that though light has come into the world, people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It sounds so stark and unidimensional when we read it in the gospel like that, but set it aside, the story of Otabenga, and it peels layers and layers and layers of denial and ignorance away. Those who do what is true, he adds, come to the light seems an apt description of our situation, albeit in first century poetry. But then again, where does help actually lie if we prefer wallowing in the darkness? And here the writer of Ephesians helps us out a bit. He explained that we are saved by grace through faith that comes as a gift of God. Did you hear that earlier? We are saved by grace 
through faith that comes as a gift from God. In other words, what we cannot do for ourselves, God can do for us if we have the humility to ask. Or the desire, I suppose. God can awaken the heart of truth, just as he did with the former slaver John Newton. Do you remember him, writer of the most famous, you know, hymn, Amazing Grace? Do you remember his story, former captain of a slave ship turned abolitionist? He got turned around in his life in just the manner Jesus describes by coming to the light and by doing what is true. He came to the light and did what was true. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see, he sang. Maybe the light just smacked him on the side of his head in such a way that he could no longer look away, or maybe he finally decided to take it on, full in the face, finding the heat of the light opening his eyes and purifying his mind and soul and singeing his hair and restoring his life. You know those words of the clergyman responding to Otabenga, haunt, haunt, they should haunt. We think we are worthy of being considered human beings with souls. My God, that they have to actually say that prosecutes the case against the world's wisdom. They actually have to write that. Wow. And as we read the stories about the life and times of Jesus, about his teachings, his suffering and death and resurrection, we can arrive at absolutely no other conclusion but that those men spoke for him. They spoke for him. Who speaks for him today? Who speaks for Jesus today? So, that's the stark story. But here's, here's what's before us, because we don't leave it there. One of the questions in Lent is this. Who's willing to take a long, hard look at the dark contours of their culture as well as the content of their character. Who is willing to do that? That's the, that's the Lenten journey. That's the invitation embedded in the Lenten journey. Setting out the situation in the bright daylight where nothing is hidden. Nothing is hidden. I tell you, you know, friends, that is a very big sort of work. We should name it as a big sort of work. 
And that's the kind of work that's been set before us to tackle. That's our work, to take it on, to take it on. And it's just the sort of work that faithful, courageous people take on because they have an instinct for knowing it's the pathway to abundant life for everyone. And the fact is, there is a path forward. We are not left only to our own devices. You have been empowered by God's grace to come to the light. You have been empowered through God's grace to come to the light. All of us collectively have been empowered by God's grace to come to the light. We can't do it on our own. We must rely on God. Why can't we do it on our own? Because left to our own devices, we prefer to live in the darkness, not in the light. That's the truth of the matter. And we see it day after day after day out there. Thank God there are many people who choose to live in the light. We take one another's hands, we walk confidently and courageously out into the world, moving into the light, moving into the light, and God attends us in our journey. That is really good news. There's some bad news, but there's some really good news here. That's the good news we proclaim. You're not going to hear this good news elsewhere, probably, for the most part. You're going to hear it here, and it's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. You know the drill. The drill is, go live it out there. The world needs you. <laughs>